My name is Sajid Jacob, and uh, I'm one of the pastors here at Frontline Church. It is great. It's great to be here with you guys this evening. If you're new to Frontline, uh, most of our teaching and preaching on a Sunday is done by our lead uh, pastor, Josh Kurian. Our teaching pastors, Josh Kurian, Andrew Burkhart. And uh, every, every few times a year, the other elders would come together and help preach. So today is my very first time preaching on a Sunday here at uh, Frontline. So thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you. Love. Um, I, I have to be honest with you guys that I'm, I'm excited, but at the same time, I'm a, I'm a little anxious to stand behind a pulpit that I really respect a lot. And what really helps me today is to stand here and, and look at all you guys and see so many familiar, familiar faces here. It is good to be reminded that I'm among family and friends. For the past six and a half years, my wife Cheryl and I have called uh, Frontline our home. And, uh, and we, I, have, I have had the joy of meeting several of you right here in this building. And I have, I have had the joy of knowing you, hearing your story, and getting to meet your family, and sometimes even sharing a meal with you. And, and I, have to, I have to say that there is absolutely not, no other place that I would be on a Sunday evening than right here with you guys. Thank you so much for loving our family well. We will continue to be in the book of Psalms, the prayer book of the church, and today we'll be spending our time looking at Psalm 23, which is the most popular psalm in all of the Bible. It's like the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. And so um, as, we, as we do that, here's how I would like to start today. I'd like for us to uh, read Psalm 23 together. It's a short psalm. I would like for us, to, I think there's something about reading God's word together. And so let's, uh, if you have your Bibles, if you can open your Bibles right in, the, right in the middle and you can flip left and you'll be in the book of Psalms. And then uh, let's read Psalm 23 together and then we'll pray and get after it. Are you guys done for that? All right, let's do this. So Psalm 23, read with me. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your Lord and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your kindness. Thank you, God, that you are here, that you have, you have drawn our hearts towards you. God, we just pray. We, we confess that we have, we have minds and hearts that are easily distracted and swayed. So we need you, Holy Spirit of God. Help us to be present here with you in this moment. And God, as we walk away from here tonight, help us to love Jesus more and rest in Jesus more and rejoice in Jesus more. To this end, we give you glory. In Christ's name we pray. So last year, I, I had the opportunity to go to uh, Memphis, Tennessee, along with my dear friend Ernest, and uh, we were attending a conference there. And on the, on the evening of the first day of the conference, uh, we decided to go and visit the famous Beale Street. And so this being my first time in Memphis, as we were driving to Beale Street, Ernest was uh, giving me a quick education on the history and the culture of uh, Memphis, Tennessee, especially Beale Street. And he told me that it's uh, home to the, the famous blues music. 
And so I told him that I, I, I'm not really a fan of blues. I'm more of a Bollywood guy. But uh, um, however, you know, I was excited to go and, uh, be, go and see Beale Street. So we reached Beale Street, and, uh, and as we were walking down the street, there was a, there was a, a few older gentlemen in the, on the side of the road. They were playing music. And there was something about the way that they, they played the music that really drew us. And, and I, I decided to maybe spend a couple of minutes and uh, watch, them, watch them sing. And so, so I was there. I, I watched them so passionately engage in this music that they clearly loved. And uh, I think my plan was actually to f- spend a few minutes. But an hour later, I was still standing there and listening to these guys belt out tunes after tunes that I've never, ever heard in my life before. And uh, after an hour, I walked away from that experience as a diehard fan of blues music. And so I was telling Ernest how good blues is and he, sh- he should start listening to it. And so uh, I-, I think that I say this because I think that sometimes we need to see someone, we need to observe someone passionately loving something before our own affections are stirred up. As we look at Psalm 23 today, in, 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 in one sense, we are leaning over history and we are, we, are, we are eavesdropping on David's prayer. And we see David's devotion and David's affection for the Lord. And our hope is that tonight the Holy Spirit of God would use that to stir up our own affections for Jesus. So when we start to, when we start to um, look at Psalm 23, there's a, there's a real temptation. There's a real temptation. Our minds sometimes will tend to drift because sometimes we look at Psalm 23 and, and it is, it is the, the picture there is so perfect that, that sometimes we are not able to connect with it because we feel like it's, it's too disconnected or it's too distant from our broken reality. If I'm a visual, visual person and so uh, if, if you are like me, Sometimes when we think about Psalm 23, the image that comes to our mind is that of a super spiritual giant slaying David waking up early in the morning with his, uh, with his what would Jesus do, coffee cup, and, and he is sitting before the Lord and he opens this really ancient King James version of the Bible and he's, uh, he's, he's ready for his devotion before the Lord. And out of, that, out of that moment comes out Psalm 23. But that is so far from reality. That is not actually what is happening here. If you start to study David's life, David's life was an absolute shipwreck. There was drama after drama after drama in David's life. He was a man who was familiar with suffering and tragedy and disappointments. As a young boy, David experienced the rejection of his father. When the prophet Samuel comes and knocks on David's dad's door, asking for, uh, to meet with David's uh, uh, brother, uh, uh, David's dad's children, David's dad forgets the fact that he even had a young son called David. And then as a young man, David experiences the loss of his wife and the loss of his best friend, Jonathan. And then for a, for a period of life, David, David spends his, his years as a fugitive, hiding from cave to cave, running away from the unjust threat of violence against him by King Saul, the, the most powerful authority in the land. And then you see that later on he becomes a leader, he becomes a king. And there he has to confront the sin and darkness of his own heart when he commits adultery with his friend's wife. And in order to cover his sin, he ends up murdering or he ends up giving the charge to murder his friend. And most Bible scholars would say that when Psalm 23 was composed, David was in the camp of Mahanaim, where, where, the, where the armies of David and the armies of his son Absalom, 
who was misguided and was now bent on murdering his own father were fighting. So this psalm comes out of a, not a, not a beautiful, perfect place, but it comes out of a place of pain and a place of difficulty and a difficult time in David's life. David uses a, a couple of metaphors in the psalm to describe his uh, relationship with God. The first half of the psalm, David uses the metaphor of a sheep and a shepherd to describe his relationship with God. And then the last two verses, he uses the metaphor of a God as a gracious host and then God as a warrior king in his life. Now, I don't know about you, but when I look at the metaphor of a sheep, that's not really very impressive because sheep are not very impressive animals. Actually, the Bible says that in, in, relationship with, uh, in, in our relationship with God, the Bible uses the metaphor of the sheep quite often to describe God's people. And, and, and honestly, I, I wish that the Bible used uh, another, another metaphor, like, like how about a, like a saber-toothed tiger? You know, that's like a, like a good metaphor, right? Or a, or a majestic lion, but none of that, sheep. You know, sheep... When you look at sheep, I don't know, I mean, I know we are from Oklahoma and there is a chance that uh, there might be some people, you know, in this building right now who really knows a lot about sheep. Well, I, I actually did not know quite a bit about sheep. I feel like preparing for this sermon, I learned a lot of random facts about sheep, which I will be graciously sharing with you, you know, throughout the sermon. And so when you, when you, when, when you look at uh, sheep, sheep are not impressive animals, Sheep are animals that, that, are, that are kind of defenseless. And honestly, sometimes it's even used as an insult. You know, the whole old adage says, saying, don't be a sheep, you know, means that sheep is not as bright as the rest of the animals. Then why does King David use the metaphor of a sheep to describe his relationship with God? Let's, let's spend the next uh, few minutes to, to read a couple of verses at a time and unpack it. And, and let's listen to what the Holy Spirit is telling us about our own relationship with God through this metaphor. Look at verses one, uh, 1 to 3. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. So having, having been a shepherd himself earlier on in his life, David knows this, that David knows that the quality of life of a sheep is completely dependent upon the quality of the shepherd. And so David here is, is using the analogy of the sheep because he, he has been with sheep and he's familiar with sheep. And, and, and I don't know if you guys knew this, but the, the internal instinct of a sheep compared to the rest of the animals is very, very dull. Sheep does not have the innate ability to know what is good for them and what is bad for them because of which the sheep tends to, uh, without a shepherd, the sheep tends to wander around and eat whatever it can, it can get. And in that process, the sheep starts to ingest some things that may be harmful for it. And then there is the threat of the, of, of, of the Mediterranean heat in this context. The sheep, sheep does not know when it needs to rest. So the sheep aimlessly starts to wander around and, and without a shepherd who is there to hydrate the sheep from time to time, the sheep not knowing when it needs to rest will keep wandering till it succumbs to heat exhaustion and dies. And so the sheep is an animal that is absolutely dependent upon the shepherd. 
And then in the first three verses, we see that David paints this beautiful picture of a loving shepherd, a shepherd that knows the nature of the sheep, and, the, uh, and a shepherd that is willing to patiently deal with the nature of the sheep and care for the sheep. The kind of shepherd that would lead the sheep to green pastures and make sure that the sheep lies down, lays down in green pastures and does not rush past green pastures. The kind of shepherd who would lead the sheep to, to still bodies of water because the sheep without a shepherd will, will dive into raging waters and be carried by the current of the stream. A shepherd who really cares for the sheep. A shepherd who helps the sheep to relax and calm down and rest so that its strength may be restored. Now, if we take an honest inventory of our own lives, we are far more like sheep than we would want to admit. We have a wandering heart. We have, we have an appetite that is easily satisfied in everything except God, our good shepherd. We have, we have a, a soul that gets weary from time to time. And, and what is interesting here is that the weariness of our soul is meant to point us to the need, to our great need for a shepherd. But instead of that, we try to distract ourselves from the awareness of, of our souls or we try to medicate the awareness of our soul. And I have to confess, I am, I am, I am an expert in doing that. Sometimes uh, when my soul is weary, when I feel the, the awareness in my soul, what I do is I tend to get myself, instead of, instead of seeing that as an invitation to come and rest in the care of my shepherd, what I do is I tend to distract myself. And so I turn to work. I turn to sometimes ministry as if ministry can comfort me and, and give me rest in the awareness of my soul. Sometimes what we do is we try to go to things. We try to medicate the awareness of our soul. How many of us have uh, decided to, to, to take a, an extended period of rest and go for a vacation? And then we come back from the vacation and we feel like now we need a vacation from our vacation. How many of you guys have felt that? Right? And then sometimes, sometimes, that's right, <laughs> sometimes we, we, there are times where we would, we would decide to um, carve some time out and rest and binge watch our favorite Netflix show. And then in the next morning, we still wake up with a restlessness in our soul. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not against vacation. I think vacations are great. I'm not against uh, watching your favorite show. But those things cannot give us a rest for our weary souls. The good news is that Jesus Christ, our good shepherd, he offers rest for our weary souls. He cares for our souls. He is he's the kind of shepherd that contends with our heart and, and willingly and patiently engages with our heart, restoring our, restoring our soul and meeting us in our weariness. How, how, does, how does Jesus care for our soul? Here are four quick ways in, by which Jesus cares for our soul. Number one, Jesus cares for our soul by, the, by sending us the Holy Spirit, the Comforter. After the ascension of Jesus Christ, he sends us the Comforter, the Holy Spirit of God who speaks to us in the, in the quietness of our heart. He speaks to us and when our souls are weary, he reminds us of the of tender mercies of God in Christ. He reminds us of the forgiveness that is offered to us. He reminds us of the perfect love that cast out fear that has been freely given to us if we belong to Jesus. And then he leads our hearts to repentance. And in addition to that, Jesus uh, cares for our soul through his word. He meets us in our wanderings and he uses his word to eliminate the path that we should walk in. That's why the psalmist says, let your word be a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus cares for us and directs us and counsels us and builds us 
with his word. In addition to that, he cares for our souls through the sacraments. In just a a few minutes, we'll be taking part in communion together. And it's a means of grace that Jesus, our great shepherd, has gifted the church. And he 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 has asked us, he's commanded us to do this in remembrance of him, to remember his broken body and to remember his shed blood whenever we come together. Because from time to time, our hearts tend to forget this, this, this great truth. Our hearts tend to forget this gospel and our hearts, our hearts grow tired. Our souls grow weary because we need the rest that Jesus provides us through the sacrament, through communion. He restores our weary souls. And then finally, he cares for our weary souls. He cares for our souls through the church. He's given us the gift of the church. So many times we take that for granted. He's, he's, he's not called us to be Lone Ranger Christians. He's called us to the family of God. He's called us to a community of people. We are one big dysfunctional family on this side of eternity. And he's called us to care for each other, love each other, carry each other's burdens, be known in the community of each other, honor each other, actually outdo, uh, outdo each other in showing honor. He's called us to walk in his community. And then he's given us under shepherds and pastors, broken men, broken sinful men who've been called to lead and care and love and serve the people of God under the authority of Christ and point the people of God back to the sufficiency of our great grand shepherd. So a faithful shepherd not only cares for the souls of his people, but a faithful shepherd also protects his people. We see that in uh, the next verse, verse 4, we see a faithful shepherd that protects the sheep. David says in, in Psalm 23, verse 4, Even though I walk through the valley of shadow of death, I shall fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. David knows that the survival of the sheep depends upon the proximity of the shepherd. The survival of the sheep depends on the proximity of the shepherd. Not just the quality of life of the sheep, but the very survival of the sheep depends upon the nearness of the shepherd. Now, uh, a good shepherd, a faithful shepherd would know how many sheep the shepherd has in his herd. He's got an account of every single sheep in his herd. And every now and then, one or two sheep gets quickly distracted and starts to wander away. And before they know, they, are, they, are, they have lost their way and they have wandered so far away from the herd. And a faithful shepherd will immediately recognize that a sheep or two is missing. And the faithful shepherd will bring the herd to safety. And then he would go in pursuit of the wandering sheep. He would go in pursuit of the lost sheep. And he will go into the wilderness and start calling the sheep. So I saw this, uh, this video, this National Geographic video recently where uh, there's, a, there's a shepherd who is a sh- who's doing a guided tour and there's a, a bunch of tourists that comes to visit his farm and he's, uh, he's showing them around. And then, uh, then, he, then in the distance you can see his herd and he has these tourists uh, try to get the attention of the sheep. And, the, and they're trying to call the sheep and they're trying to make all kinds of uh, noise and the sheep is not even paying any attention to that direction. And then after all of them have tried and failed, the shepherd, you know, comes and he looks to, towards the direction of the, the herd of sheep and he makes this super weird sound. And then all the sheep starts to come running towards him. It is, it is interesting how that reminds me of, of, of Jesus' words in John, the gospel of John that says, my sheep will hear my voice. So this shepherd, when he realizes that a sheep or two have wandered away, starts to pursue the sheep. 
And sometimes the, the shepherd, the shepherd actually takes a staff and his rod and he pursues the sheep. And sometimes uh, the shepherd will find that the sheep is threatened by the presence of a wild animal away from the presence of the shepherd. And the shepherd will take the, the, the rod, which is a heavy wooden uh, stick, and, and then the staff, which is a longer stick with a sickle-sized head. And then and he takes the staff and he takes the rod, and then he fights the wild animal. And he wards off the wild animal and he brings the sheep back to safety. Every now and then a sheep will hear the voice of the shepherd and the sheep will go further away from the shepherd. We would think that the sheep would hear the voice of the shepherd and the lost sheep would be so happy to hear the voice of the shepherd and run back to the shepherd. But sometimes the sheep being really stubborn animals will run further away from the shepherd. This is the time that the shepherd would use his staff and whack the sheep back into the fold. And (laughs) it reminds me of God's word that says that he disciplines those whom he loves. If you belong to Jesus, he disciplines us. Now, every now and then, some of the sheep will be really obstinate. I don't know if you knew that sheep actually bite. You know, they've got like thick, flat teeth and they will bite. And so, uh, so every now and then, the sheep will start to bite and kick against the care of the shepherd. And that is when the shepherd will use the rod and breaks the, knees, the, breaks the knee of the sheep and puts the sheep on his shoulders and bring it back to the safety of the fold and nurses it back into health. Now, just like David, every now, now and then, you and I find ourselves in the valley of shadow of death, meaning really difficult places. And the good news today is that even in the valley of shadow of death, we have a shepherd who's not scared of the valley of shadow of death. We have a shepherd who is present with us in our suffering, in our trials, in our temptation. In, when we are in really difficult places, we have a shepherd who is present with us, who's, who's near to us. And, and, and we, we, without, the, without the presence and without the care of the shepherd, we are, we are vulnerable to all kinds of danger in those dark valleys. The Bible primarily talks about two threats, two threats against the people of God. The first one is not very popular. I know that in enlightened societies, we don't like to talk about things that we don't, we can't explain or we can't see. But the Bible does not shy away from warning us about, about the, the, the presence of Satan and his demons. There is a, there's a spiritual word in the Satan and his demons that there's an enemy of our soul who hates who hates people made in the image of God. And, and, and the demonic has just one agenda, which is to kill, steal, and destroy. But the good news is that in John 10, John 10, 10 there is a contrast where, where the gospel of John, the spirit tells us that the, Satan comes to kill, steal, and destroy. And then he contrasts that by the nature of our good shepherd and says, but our good shepherd, Jesus Christ, he comes to give life and life in abundance. We have a shepherd who is not scared to pull his rod and pull his staff and fight against the enemy. We have a shepherd who would not let his people be tormented by the enemy. And let me, let me remind us this, that as opposed to what we see in popular horror flicks, there is no devil in hell that can come against the authority and the power and the glory that the Son of God wields. He protects his people. Then we have a second threat, a second enemy. We have a sinful nature that we have inherited from our first father, Adam. 
And this nature works against us and this nature uh, causes us not to rest in the sufficiency and goodness of our shepherd. And, and some, of us, some, of us, uh, some of us are in this place where, where you, have been, you have been hearing the voice of your good shepherd calling out to you. And, and you, have been, you have found ways to drown the voice of your good shepherd. He's been calling out to you through your conscience. And he's been calling out to you through, through his word. And he's been calling out to you through the community of his people. But you have found ways to drown his voice. And you have, you're, walk, you're running in the opposite direction. Make no mistake, my friends. The most loving thing, the most loving thing, the most merciful thing for our shepherd to do is to discipline us, is to take his staff and whack us back into the safety of his presence. He is the kind of shepherd who is not scared to interrupt our plans. He's the kind of shepherd who will, who will, who will increase the, 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 the intensity of his pursuit so that you and I may be brought back into the fold of God, into the safety of his presence. The, the, the worst thing, the worst kind of judgment that can happen is if God says, have it your way. If God stops, if God the Holy Spirit stops the content with our heart and gives us away to the wickedness of our heart. He's a faithful shepherd who uses his staff, he uses his rod to bring us back to his fold. Me and my wife, uh, we, have, uh, we have two boys and one on the way. And so uh, the older, older one is Elijah. He's eight years old. And the second one is Ezra, who's six years old. And when Ezra was three years old, one of the things that he, it's a game in his head, but one of the things that he used to uh, do was uh, he loved to run. He was really fast for a three-year-old. And so I'm, I'm like the most unathletic person that you'll ever meet. And so I think they've, both my boys have taken after my wife, and they love to run, and they love to do sports and things like that. So Ezra loves to run. And oftentimes, Ezra would always, he's got this, he's got this uh, internal radar. He always knows when the front door is open. I mean, he's the first one to know that, you know, before anybody else in the family. And so he's looking out for the latch to be off. And anytime the front door is open, Ezra will, it doesn't matter, he may be in his diaper and he will just run out of the front door. And, and this boy is fast for a three-year-old. And every time he does that, me or my wife will see that and we will run after him because we live in, live in this neighborhood where there's a lot of young people and there's a lot of young people who are really excited that they just got their learner's permit and their license so they don't really pay attention to uh, speed limits. And so most of them uh, go like about 50 miles in like 15 mile, mile uh, uh, limit. And so Ezra loves to run into oncoming traffic. And every time me or my wife sees him, and by the grace of God, we've caught him every time. And every time we see that, we will run after him. And right before he hits the street, we, I would come or my wife would come and we would sweep him off his feet. And we would, I would put him on my shoulders and, and bring him back to the safety of the home. And every time, without fail, when I, when I grab him and lift him off the ground, his little heart breaks. And there'll be tears rolling down his eyes. And he starts to protest. And he starts to make a fist. And he'll start to beat the back of uh, uh, my head. And then he would start to, he can barely speak at this time. He can barely say a sentence. And he would say things like, bad daddy. You know, he is, uh, he's really upset that I've interrupted his plan. And his plan was to run to oncoming traffic. Now, as a, as a loving dad who cares for my sons, who deeply care for my sons, the best thing that I can do is to interrupt his plan. The best thing that I can do is to chase after him and, and interrupt his plan and go against his will and stop him in his track and bring him back to safety. 
There'll be a day when my boy grows up and he would know the difference between running into oncoming traffic and staying at home. Till that day, every single time he does that, I would, me or my wife, will run and pursue him and bring him back, even if that is against his will. We have a loving shepherd who knows how to use his staff, who knows how to use his rod and bring us back to the safety of his presence. Now, David reminds us that uh, not only do we have a loving shepherd, here the metaphor changes. Here we see that uh, in verses 5 and 6, we, David uses the metaphor of a gracious host and a warrior king. Uh, let, uh, let's look at uh, verse 5 and 6. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. David introduces in the first, in verse 5, David introduces God as a gracious host. As, as I had mentioned earlier, the backdrop of Psalm 23 is a, a fierce battle going on between David's army and the army of his son, Absalom. And, and, and David knows that there is not going to be a pleasant outcome from this battle. If Absalom wins, that means that David will be murdered, surely. If David's army wins, that means that Absalom will be murdered. So there is no, there is no victory. Nobody's going to win this battle. No matter what the outcome is, it's going to be a tragic loss. And, and I, can't, I, I don't know what David was thinking in that moment. None of us know what he was thinking exactly in that moment. But I don't think I'll be, I'll be far off or way off if I told you that he may have been surrounded by shame and guilt and fear. He may have been thinking about his own story, all the things that have led up to, all the decisions that have led up to this moment. Maybe he must have been thinking about his own, his own role, his own failure or success as a father. And he's surrounded by shame, he's surrounded by fear, and he's surrounded by guilt. And in the midst of this reality, in the midst of this difficulty, in the midst of what, what seems to be one of the most difficult places that he's been in, he lifts up his eyes and he, he looks beyond the imminent and he looks to the transcendent and there he sees God, his gracious host, who's near to him in his suffering. God has not left him. David reminds us that he has a God, we have a God who does not leave us, who, who is near to us in our suffering, who does not leave us in, when tragedy hits us. In the midst of the, the, the things that we deal with, in the midst of the things that David dealt with, David has an invitation to come and feast of God's grace. He has an invitation to come and be a part of the table that God has laid before him. And David, David, David not only looks at uh, the reality of the present grace in the midst of his suffering, but David also calls us to look at the ultimate victory of God. Look at verse 6. Verse 6 says, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The, the, the big idea there is the picture of a warrior king coming home. David himself has uh, fought many battles and has won many battles. And, and in that culture, when a warrior king returns home after a battle, he leads a procession. And right behind him is his people celebrating the victory. And right behind that is his army celebrating the victory. And then behind that is the spoils of war. And behind that will be the defeated army. And in the very end of the procession will be the defeated kings in shackles. They'll be brought to be gloated over by, by, the, by the people and the army of the victorious king. And finally, they'll be publicly executed. 
And so David is calling us to consider not just the, the present help of God, but also look at the victory of God that he's promised, the ultimate victory of God. Now, many of us, uh, all of us actually in this room, we have, we have experienced the effects of the enemies of God. Sin, Satan, and death are the enemies of God. And we have experienced the effects of that. We experience the effect of uh, the enemies of God here in our city. We see all kinds of injustice like poverty and homelessness and, 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 and racism and, and all kinds of injustice that unfolds in our city. And we, we experience the effect of sin in our own heart. We deal, with, uh, we deal with fear and shame and guilt and, 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 and rejection and loneliness in our own heart. On a daily basis, we experience the effects of the enemies of God. But in the midst of that, if you belong to Jesus, in the midst of the enemies of God, Jesus Christ, our gracious host, spreads the table. The table of salvation is spread before his people and he invites us to come. And he invites us to dine with him. He invites us to drink deep of his grace. He invites our very souls to be strengthened by the feast of salvation that he has set up in the presence of our enemies. We are not left alone. We are never left alone in our suffering. There's always the temptation to think that God is absent or distant in our suffering. For the longest time, I thought that my, my suffering or my trials meant that God is absent because I believed that God was, the primary commitment of God towards me was my comfort. And, and, and here we see that that is not true. The, the, as God molds us to look more like his son, Jesus Christ, he lays a table before us in the presence of our enemies, in the presence of sin, in the presence of Satan and death. The table of salvation is set before the people of God. And, and there, is a, there is another reality at the same time. Not only has he given us sustaining grace, but he also calls us to remember the ultimate victory of God. There is going to be a day when, when, when the church rejoices, when our warrior king, Jesus Christ, will return, just as he's promised. And when he returns, he will lead a procession. And in that procession, you will see that, you will see that the enemies of God will be put in shackles and we will gloat over the defeat of the enemies of God. We will, we will mock the enemies of God, the, the loneliness and the rejection and the addiction and the uh, suffering that we face right now. We will look at it in its face and we'll mock it as we celebrate the victory of our warrior king who returns home. There's a future hope that the church is called to hold on to. He prepares a table before us in the presence of our enemies. And then we have a future hope that he invites us to remember. As we, as we conclude tonight, I want to ask us this question. How is that wayward sheep, obstinate, stubborn sheep like me and you, get to experience the loving, tender mercy and care of a loving shepherd? The Bible uh, says that all have fallen short of the glory of God. There's not one that is righteous or justified before God. How is it that, that people who are broken get to experience the table of the Lord? How is it that sinners, broken sinners, get to experience the mercy of God, the strength of God? How is it that we get to sit down and feast with him? I think to answer that, we must go to Psalm 22. You don't have to turn there. I'll read a few verses. Psalm 22 is the reason for the hope that we have in Psalm 23. 
Psalm 22 is the prophetic voice, is the prophetic cry of the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. It is, it is a prophetic cry where, where we see the suffering and death of Jesus Christ. The verses uh, one, 1 and 2, I'm going to read this, uh, follow along with me. Psalm 22, verses 1 and 2. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Verse 14. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was forsaken as he literally fought the enemies of God, as he literally walked through the valley of the shadow of death, there was no help for him. As he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There was no answer for the first and the last time. There was no answer so that you and I can cry out every time and ask the Lord, uh, cry out to the Lord, and, and, and there will never be a time when if you belong to Jesus, you will be forsaken. Because the Son of God was willing to walk through the valley of the shadow of death in your place, in my place for our sins. Jesus took the whole penalty of our sin. Isaiah reminds us that he was, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The punishment of our sins he took upon himself and by his stripes we are healed. Jesus took everything that you and I deserve and he gave us everything that he deserves. Because of him, we have hope. Because of him, we belong to the fold of God. Because he was, he was slaughtered as a sheep. He was slaughtered. The lamb of God was slaughtered before the foundation of the earth were laid. He was slaughtered in our place for our sins because of which many daughters and many sons may be brought to the table of the Lord. So if you're here tonight and if you belong to Jesus and, and you would say that maybe, maybe you're in a place that you just need an encouragement, I want, you, I want to remind you of the great love of God towards you, the great pursuit of your good shepherd the grace that is offered to you. Maybe, maybe you are in a place where you feel like you wandered far away. Tonight is a night when you can turn to the shepherd of your soul in repentance. You can turn to the shepherd of your soul and if you belong to him, you will never be rejected. If you are a son and daughter of, of God through Christ, if you belong to Jesus, there is always going to be a spot on the table with your name written on it. That is never going to change. If you belong to Jesus, you are the reward of his suffering. So as we close, if that is you, take a, take, take a minute within the, within the courts of your own conscience and speak to your Lord. If you hear the voice of the Lord, I love the word in, uh, in the book of Revelation that says, Behold, I stand at the door of your heart and knock. If anyone hears and opens the door, I will come in and dine with him and he with me. Tonight is a great night to repent and return to the fold of God, if that is you. Now, if you are here and you would say that you are not a Christian, and we are glad you're here, this, is a, this, this offer of grace is free. We did not earn, no one earned for this. Jesus Christ paid the price for this great reward, this grace that is offered to us. So this grace is offered to you today. If that is you, take a second and ask the Lord to help you believe Open your heart to feel the love of Jesus Christ. 
to feel, receive the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. In the, in the hearing of the sermon, God is not moving away from you. He's moving towards you.